everyone to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now here's the show. Today we have a special guest with us, Stephen Pro. Many of you may know Stephen from Reef Central or from his publications on reefkeeping.com, the online reef keeping magazine. Stephen has published many very informative articles on filtration, DIY activities, and experimental test results. In a past Talking Reef podcast, we discussed one of his articles on the effectiveness of using garlic extract. Stephen has recently completed a new experiment regarding the effects of reef-safe treatments on reef tank inhabitants. The results of this experiment are going to be, or were discussed at the MACNA this year and are going to be published in the December's issue of Reef Keeping. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. Stephen, can you give a, a bit of a brief history in your experience with the hobby? Well, um, I've been keeping uh, saltwater aquariums for around 12 or 13 years. I've uh, been working full-time in the, uh, you know, the aquarium industry uh, for a little over 10 years now. Um, five years I worked for a, one of the larger local pet stores doing aquarium installations and maintenance. And then a little over five years ago, I started my own business uh, doing that uh, same thing, uh, sales, design, um, installation, and maintenance of aquariums um, for myself. Excellent. You know, I've uh, often thought about this, the same thing. Must be uh, must be pretty exciting to see all the different setups and get to work with all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's it allows me to have a lot of aquariums that I can't fit in my house. <laughs> install them elsewhere and care yeah. for, get paid to care for them elsewhere. Yep. Well, your recent experiment, uh, what we're going to be talking about the show, is a great step towards actually finding out what treatments um, are actually reef safe and what are not. Uh, but one thing it does stress is the importance, the real importance of using a, a quarantine tank. Uh, can you provide a bit of information on why you decide to do this experiment? Well, there, a lot of manufacturers have, came up, have come out with various products that they claim cures all sorts of diseases. Um, and they all claim to be reef safe because that's the, the key. Um, anyone can cure most any disease if you set up a quarantine tank. It's cheap and easy uh, to set up a quarantine tank, and it's even cheaper and easier to cure diseases in there. But once you've moved a sick fish into your display and infected a mature, healthy reef tank that has, uh, you know, various corals, anemones, clams, worms, crustaceans, uh, you know, a, a, a veritable smorgasbord of life in there. It's much more difficult to, to add something that's targeted only to kill certain disease-causing organisms. Uh, there's, you know, inevitably going to be some collateral damage. Um, and, you know, the, I never felt comfortable with any of these manufacturers' claims because none of them put out any information as to proving that their product works, number one. Proving that it cures ick, proving that it cures velvet or whatever they're, you know, they're claiming it does. And then secondly, that it doesn't, you know, that they haven't put out bioassay tests that it's actually safe for a lot of different things. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to look at, to see how safe the products are in a reef-type environment. Um, because if they're not safe, then you know, there's no point in actually testing if they work because it doesn't matter. 
they're not safe to put into a reef tank. There are other things that are already proven for in quarantine tanks or, or hospital tanks. Um, so that's the first hurdle to me, to prove that they're safe for use in a, in a fully functional, fully mature reef display. Yeah, I had a, a recent experience with that, actually working with, uh, I had a, a problem where I ran into some flatworms and um, used the, the flatworm exit product. And it was actually, uh-huh. it was very interesting. I had read a lot of information on the internet before I had used the product and also had read and it had noted in the instructions that while the product is reef safe, the byproduct of killing the flatworms can be, you know, very, you know, dangerous to your inhabitants yeah, they, in your tank. Flatworms themselves are wicked toxic when they die. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, I don't know if it's so much the flatworm exit product that is, is, is problematic or is it just all the mass of them dying. Uh, of, of the flatworms dying that, that causes most people the troubles. Yeah, and I had, you know, I went through the treatment, and like I said, I think in the product it had very limited information in there, but, you know, thankfully I had I had done as much homework as I could on the Internet before I had attempted to use it and read about people's experiences and stuff like that. Uh, unfortunately, I did run into some collateral damage. I ended up losing two two of my fish, one of which I had had for for a long, long time, and it was that was a, a rough experience. But um, yeah. it, it's it's real important to to make sure that you you know follow the instructions, do as much homework as you can, and um, you know more importantly, using a quarantine tank on your fish and trying to prevent this kind of stuff from happening, so you don't have to try to treat it. Now, truthfully, I don't get the the thing with flatworms. Um, they're not that big of a deal. Uh, they're they're not parasitic. Uh, they're not predatory. Um, they're ugly. That that's about the worst thing that you can say about them. Yes, uh, you know. And after you know, I had went through. I had saw. I had read some information about them. Um, what was concerning me is I had so many of them that they were, you know, they were starting to cover up a lot of my coral and stuff yeah, like they, that. Yeah, they can some other things if they get the plague-like proportions. Yes. Um, I have some flatworms in my own display, uh, and they're almost like a, um, a signal to me. Um, I know it's time to clean my pumps when the flatworms start to reproduce. Interesting. Uh, uh, when they don't like a lot of flow. You tend to see them in little nooks and crannies, mm-hmm. little protected areas, little dead spots, and... Uh, I know it's time to clean out the strainers on my uh, return pumps and, uh, you know, give my impellers a vinegar bath and, clean, you know, just basically clean the pumps yep. uh, and also clean out the protein skimmers in an effort to starve them down. And the minute I do that kind of stuff, the population, you know, it waxes and wanes according to basically circulation in my tank. Yes, and, you know, I've, I have noticed a little bit, like I said, I did the one treatment. It did not get rid of them. Um, I still have them in there. Uh, but basically what I did is I, I went out and I got a, a six-line wrasse, and it's, it's fairly new in my tank. Um, you know, lovely fish. It's it's really exciting. You know, I never really thought about keeping one, but now that I have them, it's, they're, they're really cool little fish. But, uh, oh, absolutely gorgeous. Yes, they are. And I never realized, you know, even looking at the pictures on, on the Internet and stuff like that, you don't realize how, how cute those fish actually are. Uh, but uh-huh. the you know the the points great points that you make about the the powerheads and stuff that's something that I've talked about on on the show making sure that those all get cleaned up for various different reasons I mean when they get clogged up it it can cause some you know many other issues related to loss of flow in the tank. Oh yeah, yeah. It, water flow is you know people uh, focus way too much on lighting uh, yep. for reef aquariums and don't 
Well, now they're starting to with the you know the advent of Tootsie streams and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are paying a little bit more attention to it, but uh, it was overlooked for quite a while. Yes, and when I got into the hobby uh, a couple years back, um, I had joined a, a a group, and honestly, that was um, you know, and I look back at it, and I'm very happy that it happened that way, but. Uh, when the people had asked me about my tank and I had mentioned the lack of flow, you know, I basically described what I had. I had probably about six people attack me, not on my lighting because I didn't have very good lighting, but on the flow. And uh, thankfully for that, you know, from day one, I've pretty much had uh, very good flow, pushing, you know, at least, you know, 15 tanks an hour in, in my in my aquariums. And now in my main display tank, I'm, I'm pushing a little over 20 tanks an hour or so and trying to disperse it as, as much as I can. So it's, so far, it's doing pretty good. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of the discussion about the uh, experiment that you recently compl- completed. Uh, can you give me a little bit of uh, information about how you prepared for this test uh, from an equipment standpoint? Sure. Uh, the first thing I had my friend uh, Adam Sisnalis build me this little acrylic cubicle system. Um, if you think of like the acrylic cubicle systems you'll see at like a retail store, this is a little bit different. Uh, most of those, you know, water goes in one side and then flows through the cubes from cube to cube to the other side where it has a bulkhead and drains down to the next level. Mm-hmm. Uh, this rack that I had him build, uh, overall it measures 49 inches long, it's 16 inches wide, and 19 inches high, and there's 12 separate little compartments inside there. But none of the compartments um, flow one to the other. Uh, that was one of the first things after I got the, the the cubicle set up from Adam is I filled every other compartment with water and just let it sit for a day just to make sure there were no leaks. Uh, so they're all individuals. Um, Trying to prevent cross-contamination and stuff? Exactly. They're, yeah. they're all separate little tanks, but they all sit right on a, a nice bench. Mm-hmm. Um, so after I, I checked to make sure there were no leaks... Um, brought it in, in, inside and set it up. So each little compartment holds, if you fill it right to the rim, it'll almost hold four gallons. Uh, but for my testing, I only put three and a half gallons of water in each little cubicle part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because the filtration for each one, I used um, air-driven sponge filters. Um, a lot of people that jump right into salt water and aren't familiar with, didn't do fresh water beforehand, don't quite know what a sponge filter is, but if you think of it, it's just a big foam block um, and rising air up a lift tube, just a clear piece of pipe, uh, right. pulls water in through the sponge and then up the tube with the air. And it's just a big biological filter. Right, and uh, these are common for... actually. Those are common in smaller freshwater tanks. Freshwater t- um, hatcheries, a, yep. a lot of uh, commercial applications, you know, uh, propagation style for freshwater fish, um, they're they're big. I mean, you can you'd be surprised at how many fish you can uh, successfully house uh, with a relatively small sponge filter. Yeah, I know. I've got one stand, on standby because I'm in the process of trying to to breed some clownfish. So I, I've got one of those on standby standby because they're recommended to use as the the filtration in there, so you don't suck up the the fish larvae. Yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, though, the one thing you want to do is um, in the early stages you don't want to have a biological filter in there. Um, something about uh, toxic tank syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin has written about it. Uh, but if, for whatever reason, if you have a good biological filter in there, most all the fish wipe out. Um, they actually allow high ammonia levels uh, 
um, with baby fish. Uh, yep. Actually, the- I think what because uh, uh, I've I've been working with uh, the book that I was using is the the Joyce Wilkerson Clownfishes book, and I think mm-hmm. in that book it it actually states that you start off basically just using an air bubbler for for kind of a little bit of water movement, uh, but you don't. Yeah, I think it's specifically a little bit, of, aeration, a little bit yep. of water movement. Yeah, and they they basically yeah. say that you. I don't think you switch to a sponge filter until after they metamorphosize. Correct. Like yep. Fish. Yep. But I do have one. I do I have one on standby. <laughs> oh yeah, and they're excellent. Uh, as you mentioned before, they're excellent for quarantine tanks. Mm-hmm. Excellent to have one bubbling in your sump, uh, so that you can you know have a quarantine tank ready to go at a moment's notice. Yep. But anyhow, I have twelve of these little sponge filters, all in these twelve little cubicles. I ran all of them off of this one uh, whitewater linear piston air pump uh, that went in through a PVC manifold and uh, bubbled away on uh, all the sponge filters, applied tons of air. Um, <laughs> actually, it was pretty remarkable. I was hoping it was going to be enough, uh, big enough. I bought, actually bought the smallest one they had. I think it's called an LT-19. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the LT-19. And uh, I was hoping that it was going to be powerful enough, and it was way powerful. Um, the the water was flying through the 12 cubicles, um, Excellent. which actually was a little bit problematic when I put the Xenia in there. Uh, <laughs> the, because the cubicles themselves are kind of narrow. They're only maybe 3 inches wide, but they're, you know, 12, you know 16 inches um, deep and about 12 inches tall. Um, so there was a real strong rolling current in there. Right, yeah. The sponge filters in the airlift. So um, when I ended up putting the Zini in, I had to put little PVC collars in there to kind of hold them in place. Excellent. Uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Now, uh, you now test... This... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I, I just to say I had this uh, cubicle set up going um, to... I took water out of my, dis- my display... I took uh, 12 individual cuttings that I made from a big colony of Xenia that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all about one-inch cuttings. Uh, put them into the cubicles, one in each cubicle, and uh, lit the whole thing with a uh, URI uh, and ice cap fixture. Mm-hmm. Um, there were two actinic bulbs, one aqua sun bulb, and one white actinic bulb, all okay. on a you know standard aluminum reflector. Right, right. Now... Um, you tested looks like three different products. Is that correct? Uh, actually, four. Four I different used, products. Uh, the Camarin Stop Parasites, um, Aquatronics Green X, mm-hmm. and two products by Ruby Reef, Kick Ick and Rally. Okay. Now you actually had a, a something when I read through your initial publishing. Something that I, I, I noticed that you had actually basically you'd done the experiment essentially twice. You had two controls. Uh, then you had done the the different treatments, uh, the same treatment in two different tanks. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Just, just... Each tra- treatment was done in two cubicles. Um, there were also two control groups, uh, two control cubicles and specimens that didn't get any treatment. And also there were two negative controls. Uh, those two cubicles I dosed with um, copper, uh, actually uh, Mardell's uh, Copper Safe. Uh, a non-reef safe treatment mm-hmm. uh, as a comparison. You right. Know, so so basically, yeah, basically giving you the the extreme, the both ends of the extreme. One with a, exactly. no treatment, yes. and an untreated, a non-reef safe, and then all these allegedly reef safe treatments. Gotcha. 
So, um, as you mentioned, you used uh, Xenia cuttings from your original tank, and you had filled up all of these cubicles with your existing tank water, so as to, yeah. you know, not have to introduce them into, you know, a new environment or anything. Um, yeah. What kind of interesting um, observations did you notice during the testing, during the test phase? Um, once I started actually treating them? Yeah, dur- during the treatment, after you started with the products, did you notice anything Anything that kind of made you say, hmm, you know, anything that was curious during it? Absolutely. Well, the uh, first thing I should say is, is that the, my two control groups that were untreated, they lived and flourished and did just fine the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, had good polyp extension, um, pulsing regularly, nice color, um, healthy, uh, healthy in general. Um, the two negative controls, the ones that I dosed with copper, uh, they were dead within 24 hours. Right. Uh, you know, soon after dosing the copper, they quit pulsing. Uh, then they kind of shrank and pulled back into the collar. Um, then they eventually turned like from the they had like a a pink color originally. That was their normal healthy color. They turned to more of like a gray white color, mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually got really loose and limp. And then uh, by the next morning, there was nothing left. Gotcha. Uh, they they're just a blob mm-hmm. uh you know at the bottom of the inside the little cubicle yeah and it's any of us that have collar. yeah any of us that have had poor experience with xenias probably knows what that looks like yeah yeah um so a couple of other things um the green x um again uh there was no change in that uh either uh green x and actually kick x um both of those corals um look just like the untreated uh, control groups. Um, they never, you know, always looked fine, always ex- ex- uh, appeared good, healthy color, pulsing, good polyp extension, um, looked just normal. The rally, on the other hand, um, didn't fare so well. And this is a quote-unquote reef-safe product, correct? Yes. All of these, yes. they stated uh, the, somewhere. Yes. Yeah, actually, the uh, packaging itself says right on the front, uh, safe for all aquaria, and on the back, it says reef safe, and also safe for all fishes, plants, corals, and invertebrates. So. And your uh, your test results kind of beg to differ on that point, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, I would say they wouldn't be different. Um, the rally you dose every day for three days. Mm-hmm. Um, by the fourth day, it wasn't looking so good. It actually, you know, looked wilty. Um, I want to say that the best term is listless, uh, mm-hmm. limp. It didn't, you know, expand properly. And uh, by day nine, it was dead. Uh, and actually, I should also mention that I followed all of these um treatments and, and watched all these zinnias over 14 days uh, because the kick kick um, the last treatment for that product um, was on day 13 okay so I, I i looked over the all of the products and all the specimens over the two-week range and i also think it's important to mention that uh, most of these products are the instructions that are included them with them are basically designed for dosing larger tanks they'll say x amount for every 50 gallons you did properly convert all that down and were very diligent in making sure that they were not overdosed, correct? 
Yes, and I actually erred on the side of caution. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I filled all the tanks initially with three and a half gallons, mm-hmm. uh, but I conducted this experiment in August. Um, and at the time, we were running the air conditioning here pretty steadily, and uh, also the air lifts um, helped c- to contribute to a lot, you know, pumping a lot of dry air into the tank uh, contributed to a lot of evaporation as well as, you know, the house being cool, dry air mm-hmm. uh, tended to make a lot of evaporation as well as the VHO lights that gave off a good amount of heat. Right. Uh, so all that contributed to evaporation. So when I calculated the dosages, I assumed the tanks only held three gallons of actual water when, in fact, they actually all held three and a half because I had to fill them up, you know, every day with about a cup of water, a right. cup of deionized water. So just in case, you know, I missed a day, I didn't, or, you know, over the course of that day, I didn't want the, you know, the concentration to be increased because it would evaporate down. So I assumed all the tanks had three gallons of water in them for the, for as far as my dosing went. Right. So, it, you know, like you said, you erred on the side of caution and were very careful, was very careful to make sure that there was no overdosing that lead could have led to some negative effects. Now, the one thing that I did like, when I read through the, the, the article, you do have a very, a very nice graph that was very easy to read with, with the test results in that. So um, for everybody, when, you, when the article is published, it's a, a very easily readable chart in there. So, yeah, I did make it out in the December issue of Reef Keeping Magazine. Excellent. Uh, it's still in the editing process, but uh, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't foresee any problems with it making it in that issue. Great. So now um, you basically went through, uh, you tested these these various different products in there um, over the course of fourteen over fourteen days. And when you were completed, what were your what were the overall results and the impressions of the test? Okay. Well, as I said, the control group lived. That's good. The negative control group died, which you know <laughs> was to be expected. Comparison to have um, Green X and Kick Kick lived, no troubles. Uh, I already mentioned the rally, which died around day nine. Actually, on day nine, they mm-hmm. were dead. Uh, they were starting to look bad around day four, and by day the morning of day nine, they were dead. Um, and again, they looked just like the copper control group, a nondescript blob down in the middle of the PVC collars. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the stop parasite, um, I hadn't really mentioned yet, uh, that is actually you dose twice a day, every day for five days. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on the fifth day, that coral um, in actually both containers um, was not looking good. Um, again, it was looking kind of wilty, um, you know, not pulsing, not full polyp extension, just generally not looking good. But it did rebound. Um, for day six, seven, eight, nine, it looked fine. Um, but then, by again, by day 10, it started to look wilty, and um, in general, you know, not looking healthy. Right. Um, it continued to look that way throughout the rest of the testing. Um, by day 14, it still looked wilty. And it was on day 14 that I actually noticed the, the most um, strange, I guess, observation that I had made. Uh-huh. Um, I knew that the coral just didn't look right. Uh, wasn't pulsing, didn't look good. Um, in general, just looked weak. Uh, but I couldn't quite, you know, pull my finger as to why. Right. Uh, and then on day 14, I noticed that if you look at a, a zinnia, it has, you know, a center stalk. 
And then from that stock, there's eight um, little appendages. Okay. And each one of those appendages is covered with little hair-like um, fibers. Right. Um, they're called pinules. Mm-hmm. Um, the stop parasites in uh, treated xenia in both containers actually were missing almost all of their pinules. Interesting. I've seen those. I've seen that happen, and heard of that happening um, when you overdose with iodine. It has some kind of way of burning the ends of the zinnia. Is it could be something similar to that? Could be. I I, I do not know. Um, it was just an observation that I made. There were little nubs, and they looked less like zinnia heads and more like uh, you know star polyp heads. Right. You know, right. Like just eight little things poking out the sides and they had little nubs on the ends instead of a full uh, pinules. Were they extended? Were they still extended or were they kind of closed up? Weakly and wilty, you know, like limp. Okay. You know, it just didn't, they they were not, um, you know, not like the uh, untreated groups or even some of the other groups that looked, you know, normal. Right. Now, I, you know, as you stated, your your chart and your test results went to 14 days. Now, with this product, after the 14 days, um, did you continue to monitor these at all? Did they end up uh, dying or recovering? Well, I only monitored them exclusively for 14 days. And uh-huh. actually, uh, by day 16, I left for Macdon. Okay. Uh, so I got to look at them a little bit on day 15, but I was packing and, and other things were a priority. Right. And then I left early in the morning of the 16th. Now, after I got back from MACNA, I did check in on them again because they were still going. Um, but, um, you know, there, there was no care. No one was taking care of them anymore. Right. Uh, my, you know, my wife was here, but she was feeding the fish, not taking care of this experiment. Tank. Right. The water had all evaporated down. Um, nonetheless, the stop parasites, Xenia, were actually still alive. Um, they still looked bad. Um, but they were still hanging in there. Um, okay. So I can't say that the stop parasite killed Xenia. Um, it didn't look good at the end of the testing, but um, it certainly was still alive at that point. And, you know, maybe with some water changes, you know, who knows. Right. So there's no happen. conclusive proof that, you know, if, if this had continued on, that it would have recovered or what have you, because after the 14 yes, days, not, care had stopped. Um, right. I was only explicitly looking to see if it killed it or not. Gotcha. Uh, the the only interesting observation that I thought was that the pinules, you know, were were missing or uh-huh. or, or misshapen. Uh, you know, th- I thought that was unusual. Right now, you also weren't it, adding anything to these tanks, no um, food or anything like that during the experimentation, correct? No, Xenia doesn't really eat all that much. I right. mean, it absorbs some nutrients out of the water, but it really doesn't, um, you know, doesn't feed. Right. Uh, in the sense that, like, a lot of other corals do. Now, there's a term for that. Isn't that referred to as uh, autotrophic, I think it is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's nearly autotrophic. Um, they, you know, they, they get almost all their energy requirements from uh, light, and then whatever they, you know, dissolved organics, they suck out of the water. Right. But they don't have a very well-developed uh, digestive tract, as far as I know. Interesting. Okay, so... Um, the one final thing that I wanted to touch on here is that um, basically... Um, Based on the fact that you really only used uh, Xenia in this experiment, um, if you could explain a little bit why these test results are not 
totally final. Well, some of the products had some, you know, some negative effects. The ones that had positive results may not, it, this isn't a conclusive test showing that those specific products are completely reef safe. Yes, yes. I wouldn't draw any conclusions about them, you know, being safe, because like I said, this is only, like you, you mentioned, this is only uh, one test subject. You know, I, I tested them on Xenia. Um, uh, ideally, I'd like to see more testing done. Um, mice shrimp, copepods, um, you know, some sort of a little echinoderm, some sort of little starfish or something like that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I even thought about repeating the test myself, because uh, while I was at MACNA, um, you know, somebody I know came up to me and said that they used one of these other products that did well in this test. Um, they used it, you know, in their own tank and uh, didn't bother any of their corals except for all the simularia. All the simularia died. Um, hmm. You know, so I thought that was kind of interesting as a one-off observation. Um, it would be interesting to try and test again using maybe simularia this time and see if that has any difference. Or even using, you know, a stony coral like, a, you know, an acropora or a montipora or a possilopora, something along those lines. Uh -huh. um, so I think there's still a lot more testing to be done to prove that they're safe. And then there's the final hurdle. If they prove that them, themselves to be safe, whether or not, you know, they actually are effective. Right. Um, if you look on, you know, at least anecdotal reports, in some cases they seem to work, and in other cases they don't seem to do much of anything. Um, it is hard to, you know, really draw too much of a conclusion from these, you know, little anecdotes because you don't know, you know, how far along the fish were, you know. Were right. they doomed to die anyhow because they were totally covered by the time they started using any of these medications or what, but... Um, again, it would be interesting to see, you know, once they've jumped all these other hurdles to prove that they're safe, to prove that they actually are effective. Right, yes. That, that's that's common, and I've seen a lot. And I think probably one of the, the biggest diseases that pretty much everybody's familiar with is ick. And there seems to be, you know, 715,000 different ways to treat ick. Everything from just leave them alone, they'll get fine by themselves, to um, raising the temperature in the tank and increasing flow, um, you know, to using garlic, as you mentioned before, and, you know, all the different products that are out there to, to actually kill ick. And the results are as varied as the, the amount of people using them. And I think it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to actually determine whether the fish was able to recover on its own and would have been fine whether you use the product or not. So, you yeah. know, it is, you know, you have to check out and get a lot of different information and, and in some cases the products may work in some cases they may not but um, I definitely agree that there's some more testing that that needs to be de done before we come up with any positive uh, results now the the test that you did definitely showed some negative results and showed some products that we should probably um, attempt to steer clear from in our display tanks uh, but uh, mm -hmm. as far as you know, positive results, I think there's. Uh, I agree. There's there's a lot more testing that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. and, and and like you mentioned, you know, with ick, the, the thing that confounds everyone with that is that you know, fish can develop naturally, can naturally develop an acquired immunity to this parasite. Um, the more that they are exposed to the parasite and are not killed by it eventually they can develop immunity to it where the parasite will attach to them, but it will never develop. 
mm-hmm. and will actually, you know, it, it won't grow, it won't drop off and reproduce. Um, so that kind of confounds things, you know. How many times was your fish exposed? Um, even previous to you owning it, how many times was it exposed to this parasite at the wholesale collection right. uh, station, uh, retailer? Um, you know, how many times was it exposed? What level of immunity does it have? Um, so that kind of, you know, taking these little anecdotes of, you know, I did this and my fish got better. Well, could you have done nothing and your fish had gotten better? Exactly. You don't quite know. Exactly. Uh, so, so that's important in evaluating, you know, these alleged reports of people using all these products and, you know, or all these different methods. You know, there's only three proven methods to work. Copper, hyposalinity, and tank transfer. Everything else is a crapshoot. Yes. Now, I think one of the other very common problems that I I see that people run into, um, which I've actually experienced before, um, is misidentification of the disease. Uh, For most hobbyists, we're not um, chemists, we're not biologists, marine biologists, so you know, they'll have a fish and they'll notice white dots and immediately it's assumed that it's ick. And in a lot of cases, and, you know, I'm starting to believe uh, from my, my, you know, limited experience with myself and the few people that I know that a lot of cases that ick is usually misidentified and it's usually not ick. And, I, you know, like I said, I ran into a, an experience back when early in the hobby where I was, you know, losing some fish and they all had these white dots on it, and I did exactly that. I assumed it was ick, and, you know, I didn't treat with anything specifically, but I had tried uh, various different, you know, things to try to to solve it, and when, you know, I was, you know, I continued to lose some fish, but basically what had happened is I had went and I had used a a product that was meant to to kill um, infection, a bacterial or fungal infection, and after a couple, you know, after a day or two of dosing with that, um, the, the fish have been fine and I've been fine ever since. So I, I think misidentification um, is also, you know, a big issue, you know, at least, you know, for the common hobbyist. Yeah. I, I see a lot of misidentifications of other diseases. A lot of people get it pretty right. You know, it, it's, it's pretty characteristic, white spots the size of grains of salt, uh, but you know, there are some other things that look similar. Um, velvet can look somewhat similar. Um, there are some parasitic copepods that could look similar, but they're kind of, you know, considerably rarer uh, than running into your your garden variety egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there there are certainly you know it it is even looking at pictures. You know, people ask on the internet. You know, this is my fish. He doesn't look right. You know, what should I do for him? In a lot of cases. You know, there's no way to say for certain what is wrong with a fish. Uh, you end up taking a, you know, use this, see if it will gets better. If not, go to this. Uh-huh. And if not that, use this. And we'll just rule out possibilities. Right. Uh, and, and that's, you know, probably one of the easiest things to do because most of us aren't, we don't have the tools or the uh, references to do scrapings and, uh you know, look into under a magnifying glass to properly ID things. Right, exactly. Educated guess, mm-hmm. and then go from there. And if if it wasn't that, then what's next? Yep. You know, and what is you know what cure that? 
Yeah, and it, it definitely it gets a lot more complicated, especially moving on from fish and, and getting into coral and, and all the different types of coral diseases. You know, fortunately, I haven't ran into um, any real problems with, you know, corals. I've actually only had one colony, which was a wild colony, that I had lost due to um, the common term RTN, which seems to be, you know, a blanket description when you just have rapid tissue loss. Um Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I have, I have a, a popular coral book, and in that book, you know, just the the sections on on coral disease. There's just there's so many different types of things, and um, identification seems like it could be a little bit challenging to you know to a lot of yeah I guess passive hobbyists or absolutely yeah. And quite frankly, a lot of the, the the coral diseases are not very well understood and very well documented, even by yeah. the experts. So, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I remember it was a couple of years ago, Eric Borneman gave a presentation on coral diseases um, in the wild, various things that they had, uh, you know, seen. And they were, uh, one was white pock disease or something like that. Yep, and you know what, and it's his uh, book that I was I was referencing that I have. And, uh, yeah. He discusses yeah, and a lot really of that stuff in Because there. he was talking about all these different diseases, and I remember one being these white hunks. You know, it looked like the, the the tissue as well as the underlying skeleton had, uh, you know, just been eaten away by something. And literally that was the case. Um, it was eaten away by a parrotfish. <laughs> you could see later on they had video <laughs> of parrotfish going by and taking chunks out of the coral. It wasn't a disease. It was, you know, physical damage. Yep, interesting. There was another one where he showed um, these uh, big... Uh, massive brain corals, these big boulder-ass brain corals. And there was this, uh, you know, tissue was gone along the ridges. And, you know, they came up with another disease, you know, name for this disease and, you know, started taking pictures and documenting and looking for, you know, signs of, you know, scrapings and whatever. And they eventually saw that it was the damselfish that were living around this that were pecking away the, the, the tissue and eating the corals. Uh, so, again, it wasn't really a disease, so... But, I mean, not, not to say that there aren't legitimate right. coral diseases. There are. Uh, but none of them are really all that well understood as of yet. Right, yeah. And as going through the book, uh, you know, they do. You know, Eric did provide a lot of, you know, information in there on possible diseases. Uh, but I know that with, with dealing with, you know, different forums and uh, different places on the Internet, uh, especially with... Yeah, there's a lot of things that are cropping up, a lot of pests and predators that are cropping up yes. now that... You know, we didn't used to see a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the red bugs are relatively new. They only started coming onto the scene maybe two or three years ago. Yes. Uh, Montepore nudibranchs, the acro-eating mm-hmm. nudibranchs. Um, there's a lot of little little bugs cropping up here and there. So. Yeah, so um, basically we're, uh, just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, uh, what kind of uh, things do you have planned next? And uh, will you be doing any... Uh, I know we talked about this a little bit, but do you have any uh, harder plans to follow up uh, with this, you know, on this reef-safe product testing or anything else that you might be working on? Yeah, I thought about doing the, the uh, some more of the reef-safe uh, testing. Um, that's kind of on the back burner for me right now. Um, I wanted to look into this, you know, I kind of look into things that interest me. And right now it's not really interesting me to look into this anymore. <laughs> right. Um, the, the, the next big thing that I'm looking at is garlic. I want to take a look at garlic and see if it works. I think that would be a great experiment. I know that there's a lot of uh, information, you know, people saying how, how good it works and how awesome it is. You know, I I personally use it 
Uh, but, you know, basically I don't use it as a, a treatment. Um, I use it for one of, or, you know, I use it for two different things. One uh, is I have seen it do very well uh, as an appetite enhancer when I have finicky fish. Um, I have had a lot, on a lot of occasions where I get fish to eat with it. Um, but the other thing that I do know about garlic, and this, you know, applies to people uh, as well, is it is a natural antibiotic. So while it may, I don't know that it's going to cure anything, you know, I feel that, you know, it, it costs me a couple dollars. It's not that big of a deal. And if it's going to help strengthen the immune system uh, of the of the fish, then, you know, I think it, that to me it may be worth it. But some, some better hard evidence might be real good. There, there is some evidence that it could be a good dewormer. And I think a lot of people um, overlook that aspect. You know, they, these are wild collected fish. And, again, I think it's a product of, you know, so many of us, uh, so many of the saltwater hobbyists aren't familiar, you know, didn't, learn through the trenches of freshwater fish. Um, but it's it's standard practice when importing freshwater fish, wild caught freshwater fish to deworm them. Um, discus and angelfish and, you know, wild caught cichlids are plagued with uh intestinal worms. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not all that uncommon in saltwater fish either. They're all wild caught and it's it's not all that uncommon to have for them to be have a lot of worms too. Um, so it's not a bad uh idea to put some of that garlic in in the beginning. Uh, you know, as a dewormer. Now, it, when you're referencing to deworming, are, are you using uh, just a garlic soak in your food, or is there some other method for uh, uh, in giving it to them? Well, ideally would be preparing your own fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I don't even grow my own phytoplankton. I buy bottled stuff, you know. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go through, you know, the process. Of, uh, you know, I, I'm using a prepared product myself. Right. Now, um, I have – I do use um, – a, a product for my for my garlic stuff and when I've looked at it you know this bottle that I use it's like you know twelve dollars or something and it lasts me a long time and looking oh, at the yeah. amount of work that it, it would go into you know preparing you know crushed garlic and uh, extracting the juices and stuff out of that you'd have to do that on such a regular basis and and I'm convinced that the cost in just buying the garlic cloves you know, say over the course of, you know, a couple months would quickly outweigh the, the $10, $12 I'm going to pay on a bottle that will easily last me six months. Yeah, it, to me, I, I, I'm i only using it as a potential dewormer. I'm throwing it out there and hoping it works, uh, but I also don't hesitate. If I have a fish that's showing obvious signs of worms, you know, I, I'll use a real drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just something I'm using, you know, as a... Uh, Preventative measure. Uh, prophylactic, yeah. Yes, which is which is my take yeah. on it at this point. Also, like I said, I haven't seen any anything that really jumps out and says this stuff works. So, you know, like I said, I use it, you know, pretty much for the same, you know, just as a, a preventative maintenance, and you know, hopefully, just yeah. make them a little healthier. Yeah, I use it, you know, when I first get them in while they're still in quarantine, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully to screen some things, uh, you know, hopefully clean them up a little bit, you know, certainly can't hurt. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, um, is there anything else that you'd you'd like to mention? Any other uh, tests or articles that you might be working on? Well, well I'm, I'm going to do a couple other little tests that will go pretty quick. Uh, I want to take a look at activated carbon uh, for phosphates. Um, and I also want to take a look at, uh, you know, hydrometers and see how accurate they are. Oh, that's an interesting of, test. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that, you know, unfortunately this hobby is dominated by anecdote. You yes. Know, people do something and it works or it doesn't work and then those become rules. 
you know, we all believe hydrometers are inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to see how inaccurate they are. So I actually got 12 um, hydrometers from all over the country, brand new in packaging. Um, so I'm going to compare them. I have a uh, refractometer as well as the uh, um, electronic salinity monitor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to calibrate both of those, uh, test my tank, and then see how these 12 hydrometers do out of the package. Yes, I have seen... They are. Yeah, I've seen a lot of different people say that, you know, when they finally got their you know refractometer, which I actually just just finally uh, ordered one, so I should be getting one soon. Um, but how they say that when they get theirs and they compare it to their hydrometer, um, how inaccurate they are. And you know, yeah. I think the, the the thing is too, how many people are actually taking those hydrometers when they're done and rinsing them off? You know, and not leaving salt and calcium deposits and on them that crud them all up. Yup, and properly seasoning them too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to see how well they do. You know, following the instruction, testing right out of the box. Yup. And then you know, I may see you know, uh, you know, over time how they do. You know, use them a bunch and rinse them with DI water. You know, see how well they maintain over time. Yes. Um, things that I'm kicking around. Yes. I definitely want to look at the hydrometers right off the bat. I definitely want to look at activated carbon phosphates, you know, to see if there's any brands that leach. Because, again, that's an anecdote. You know, certain people, there are certain brands that we know that people have used and haven't had any problems with, and there's others that are, like, you know, a little bit suspect. Uh, but I'd right. like to see, you know, exactly, you know, take the carbon, soak it in a little container of water, test for phosphates, yep. see what happens. Yes. Uh, pretty simple little things that I think, you know, us hobbyists can do and uh, be reasonably accurate with. Yeah, but you know, it's... it's numbers down to, to go, coincide with our experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's great that there, there's people like you out there um, doing these kind of experiments. And, you know, it, it's actually made me think about... Um, you know, doing some stuff like this too and helping to get some information out there because uh, I think it's a lot more valuable to have stuff like this because it's it's so common that, you know, someone has a question or runs into a problem and they talk to one, maybe two people, get, you know, a quote-unquote anecdotal answer and they now take that as gospel. And in some of the, yeah. in one of my past shows, uh, it's something that I, I stress quite highly that, you know, if you've got a question you know, don't listen to me, you know, listen to my information, but the one, the, one of the best things that you can do is go out and validate what I'm saying, what the person at your local fish store is saying, what anybody is telling you, try to validate it in as many places as you can, you know, instead of just mm-hmm. taking it as what, what somebody said. So, you know, hopefully, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just going to say, Dr. Shimmick did a, an excellent presentation I saw recently on evaluating people's advice. <laughs> Very good. A lot of help, helpful tips in there. And one of the ones that was most interesting was, uh, you know, find out their level of education. You know, like there's there's some noted, um, and, and I'll be straight and honest with you, I don't have a degree in fish biology or, or marine <laughs> biology or anything like that. Right. I don't even, I never even completed my degree. Uh, I was actually studying to be an engineer, and I'm about a year away from doing that uh, when I decided that would make me miserable. Uh, so, <laughs> um, I never completed my degree, um, but I read. Uh, I'm an avid reader, and I'll, I'll read you know, scientific literature uh, pretty regularly. I'm, I'm driving my library crazy because I'll go get you know, all kind of uh, you know, scientific periodicals. 
mm-hmm. uh, have them request them through interlibrary loan and have them delivered. Right. Uh, but anyhow, uh, one of the things he mentioned was, you know, uh, their, uh, look at their degree. What did they get the degree in? Um, because there's a couple uh, noted uh, hobby writers uh, that go by doctors. They're, they're doctorates. Uh, but one has a doctorate in marketing. <laughs> it's not, uh, you know, fish-related at all. Uh, right. So, but know when they got their degree. The other thing that he mentioned was know when they got the degree because he said that's one of the, the keys is, you know, when someone gets a degree, it's generally the day they quit learning. Uh, they quit reading anymore. They yep. get their, their Ph.D. and they're done. Uh, so, you know, you want someone that keeps up with the the. the the literature every day because things are always changing. There's always new information out there, and uh, you know, don't don't rely just on what you read on the internet or talking to people. Uh, you got to read a lot of books. You got to read a lot of magazine articles, and you got to read some scientific journals as well um, to get a, a full understanding of this uh, hobby. Right. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's it's important, especially when talking to other people. You know, I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd go as to far. You know, to make sure that the person you're talking to has a, a doctorate's degree. But you definitely, you know, depending on the information you get, and you know, it, it may be important. Uh, but you definitely need to keep your your BS meter, you know, turned on. If they're, exactly. you know, if they're providing you information, if you ask the right questions and you pay close attention, you can tell whether they're giving you secondhand information or whether they're giving you firsthand. <laughs> experience now firsthand experience yeah. Yeah. it's only one person some of the doctorates are some of the worst yes uh, some are exceptionally good there are some you know some some very brilliant people out there uh-huh. uh, that are doctorates and there are some really suspect people out there yes. that uh, give you some very shaky advice so yes you have to you have to learn how to discern good advice from bad advice yes and it, like I said it, by asking the right questions you know you can tell you know whether they went through it or not, and you know, like I was saying, even if it, even if they did, and it, you you determine that it's not, you know, BS. Again, it's only one person's experience, and you should try to validate the information in as many places as possible. Yeah, because there's a lot of variables in an aquarium. Yes, you know, there, there there can be many reasons why a certain methodology worked or failed in any given application. Yes, in our our aquariums, especially for the people that are in full-blown reef aquariums, you know, and I I had no idea before I got into this. And as as I progressed and I started becoming more interested and and it's it's just I I have to say that I'm in total awe every time I think of, you know, what I have sitting here. It is it's truly just amazing the the details and the amount that this is like a little ecosystem i mean it's there's so many things that are so complex and you know there's so many of us that keep these things going on a, on a daily basis and it's 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 really cool yeah and if we really ever want to you know the hobby is somewhat looked down by the scientific community but you know if we ever want to be taken seriously we have to start you know putting together some little experiments like this so that we can say you know, we have more than just our, you know, experience and observations. You know, we, we've we've done some actual work here. We've you know noticed some real, some real trends, some yep. real, you know, controlled little experiments we put together. You know, and saw some things that worked and some things that didn't work, and you know, uh-huh. it would be really helpful in in other areas. Yes, and you know some of the experience experiments that I had thought about doing. You know, I I was I was thinking a little bit too big, I think, 
um, looking at testing, you know, different types of coral growth under different types of lighting and stuff like that. But I just, I personally don't have the money to invest in the different types of lighting and stuff like that. But, you know, mm -hmm. after talking to you, you know, it's just little things like testing the hydrometers and, and testing, you know, carbon and, and different products like this. It's, it's great stuff that, you know, and even you just, you just spent, you know, two weeks doing a test on different types of, of products. And, there would be no reason why somebody couldn't repeat this ex exact same experiment that you just did. And one of two things, you know, they're going to confirm your results or come up with something a little bit different. It's just, the more data, the better it is. Absolutely. That's the whole point of science is, is reproduction of, you know, uh, the experiment and hopefully the results. Yep. And if not, then they have to see why, you know, why, why the results differed. What, what, what happened? What went, you know, what, was different exactly so i think we're gonna wrap up the show for the evening uh steven i'd like to thank you very much for spending time with us and coming on the show well thanks for having me great and uh we look forward to uh seeing and reading that article and uh, like i said that article should be coming out on reefkeeping.com and it's supposed to be published yeah. in the december issue correct yes yeah and it's reefkeeping all one word mm-hmm no hyphens or spaces. Or right, like right. So um, I will make sure that there is a, a link to reefkeeping.com uh, on the website and in the show notes for this Excellent. show. Uh, Stephen, do you have any uh, personal website or personal project website or anything that you would like to plug and have added into the show notes uh, or anything? Not really. I actually have a personal website, but it's kind of uh, <laughs> grungy. You know, just one that I threw together because uh, Verizon gave me a free one. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, it's not that bad. I've actually been there and I've seen it. So, so. Um, is there any other you know uh, projects or organizations that you'd like to mention? That you support or? Oh well, uh, you know, I, I I do some writing for reef keeping. I also do some writing for um, a, another online magazine called Conscientious Aquarist. Mm -hmm. um, you can get through there through uh, wetwebmedia.com. Yep, I'm familiar um, with that one too. And uh, you know, also uh, this, uh, there's another online magazine I write for uh, on occasion called Reef Hobbyist Online. It's a, a publication of uh, Reefland.com. Um, you know, so mostly online. I have done some print work uh, for uh, Freshwater Marine Aquarium magazine, FAMA for short. But um, you know, m most of the stuff I've been doing lately has been for online magazines. Excellent, which I think is a great resource. They're all archived, and everyone can yep. you know you can go back and look at everything that's been written in the past. Exactly. So, uh, Stephen, again, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show, and hopefully, we can do this again sure. next time you have uh, some test results to share or anything else you'd like to share. Oh, sure. Excellent. Yeah, let me know. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay.